Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Brothers Karamazov. I'm hoping that today's lecture will be a little shorter, since this section is a bit more straightforward and a bit shorter in its own right than most of the ones we've been talking about up until now. But, of course, I always hope that that's going to be the case, and then rarely ever does it actually turn out to be. Um, we do, in fact, have quite a bit to talk about here, even if this is a shorter section, just because Dostoevsky is introducing some fairly new ideas here, giving us some rather thorny puzzles to work out, and generally this is not going to be straightforward as much as I'd like it to be. Um, but I want to start this one a little bit more traditionally. Thus far, we've been kind of going character by character and assessing how Dostoevsky treats each one of them, which is, you know, a fair approach and probably warranted, and we're not going to be deviating too far from it today. Uh, but I'm going to take this a little bit more chronologically, uh, since there are only seven sections here, and since most of them do in fact correspond to the characters that we're bumping into in those sections. Um, and I want to start here at chapter one with Father Farafont, because this chapter is weird, and it's setting up a lot of stuff that's going to be relevant later, as well as introducing some new ideas that we haven't quite bumped into yet. Um, I want to talk about exactly everything that's going on here, uh, starting, of course, with Father Zosimo's rather alarming announcement He's going to die today, uh, and there's going to be truth to this. Like, I'm not sure if it's within the next 24-hour period or shortly afterward, but Father Zosima, his days are numbered. We knew this going into our discussion. We saw him utterly exhausted at the monastery before, um, and now he very much says, like, this is it, folks. Um, in the last chapter, we didn't really talk about it in the lecture so much, um, but we had a moment where all the monks showed up to confess to him, and Dostoevsky even sort of waffles about whether or not this is a good idea, and how sometimes it's, you know, very heartfelt and very meaningful, but for some of the monks it's very artificial and very put upon. Um, and I find that to be kind of important to think about as we're talking about this passage here. Um, in the second section, when we talked about and met Elder Zosima and were seeing him sort of arbitrate what was going on between Fyodor and Dmitri and talking to Ivan and all of the other characters, he very much was blameless. It was very easy to see him as just utterly without fault, um, almost unbelievably good. Um, we saw him interact with the peasant women, and he was very kind and generous to them. Uh, Madame Koklikov apparently thinks that he's some kind of saint or something. And even now, we get this Madame Koklikov letter that apparently, like, her son has just sent her a message, just like Father Zosima said. And as a consequence, she's convinced it's a miracle, and it's apparently, like, this new scuttlebutt in the monastery, all the monks are buzzing about how that he's performed this miracle, how he would prophesize the return of, of her son. And obviously Zosima himself is not, like, I'm not even sure he's aware that this is going on. Like, if they told him, he was probably very indifferent. I, I didn't remember specifically. Um, he's much more preoccupied with the fact that he's going to die um, for good reason. But this is significant, because in Christian circles, you know, you don't get to be a saint unless you've got certain miracles reported about you. So, you know, admittedly I'm more familiar with the Catholic process of canonization than the way that the, the Orthodox Church handles this. But this is all the more indication that he is this really popular figure, and everybody thinks of him as this very holy person. Um, we're waiting to see some sort of miraculous, you know, confirmation of how he is God's chosen servant here. 
Um, but at the same time, Zosima, like the way that he actually addresses people is very simple. Like we get a speech here, a fairly significant speech, even by Dostoevsky standards, but it's very mundane. Um, it's important, don't get me wrong, and it's probably more true than half the other speeches we've read in this, certainly more true than Smerdyakov's like, de denial and rejection of Christianity up until this point. But it's very boilerplate Christian, very pragmatic. Love one another, fathers, he starts out. Love God's people. We are not holier than those in the world because we have come here and shut ourselves within our walls, but on the contrary, anyone who comes here by the very fact that he has come already knows himself to be worse. He stresses that our guilt, uh, we are guilty before all people, on behalf of all and for all, that the monks are sort of tacitly accepting the sins of the world onto their shoulders, and their prayers and their, their penances are for everyone and not just for themselves. Um, they are representatives of people as a whole. Um, but it's all very pragmatic, all very ethical, which we shouldn't be surprised by. Zosima was just like this in the second chapter as well. Like, all of his advice, all of his suggestions, the only time that he even gets remotely theological is when he responds to Ivan's discussion about the role of the ecumenical courts. And even then, he's much more interested in the direct effects on the people who are judged. The fact that convicts do not feel responsible to the state in the same way that they feel responsible to the church. As always, Zosima throws out the high spiritual theology, trying to understand the inner workings of God, the mysteries of, that sit behind the Christian faith, and instead is very, very concerned with how do people treat each other. His speech here is not, you know, I have seen beyond the veil. It is, don't be jerks to each other. Like, it's really fairly straightforward. Don't hate atheists. Don't be proud. Don't be afraid of your sin. Don't, you know, engage in usury. Don't love silver and gold. Humiliate yourself. Love each other. Pray frequently and remember these people in your prayers. That's what he's emphasizing here. Um, and I want to stress that this is a direct contrast to Father Farapont. This is the, the clear foil that Dostoevsky is setting up here. Now, we've heard about Father Farapont. There have been rumors of the way that he behaves, but now we actually get to see him, because this one visiting monk from Abdorsk who is very alarmed and not a big fan of the institution of the elders, which, you know, as we've talked about, is apparently very controversial in the church. Lots of people think that it's, you know, too much power given to, to these people. Father Zosima doesn't seem to really have a strong view one way or the other. He's just in this position, so he's going to, you know, do it to the best of his ability, because that's who he is. But we have this monk from Abdorsk who is looking for a second opinion here. Okay, so there's reports of this miracle that he supposedly performed, and he seeks out the guy who is famously an opponent of the institution of elders and kind of the, you know, mirror image of Father Zosima, Father Farapont. And notice what Father Farapont's credentials are. Like, the specific thing that, that sort of distinguishes Father Farapont, that, that we are told about him immediately, is that he is constantly fasting. He is avoiding contact with the other monks. He is sort of, like, he's not a flagellant. That's very much its own thing. You'll notice that Dostoevsky occasionally refers to the flagellants. There's this whole controversy within the church and within 
Russian Orthodoxy at this point, because like the flagellants are this old sect that have been around forever, and they literally do flagellate themselves. They beat themselves. Um, and the church is generally frowning upon this, but people also sort of recognize that there's a holiness to this. Um, Father Farapont isn't a flagellant, not officially, but he behaves like one. His claim to fame, his specific brand of holiness, largely involves depriving himself of things. Um, he only eats something like two pounds of bread every three days with, you know, one special meal on the, on the, uh, on Sunday. Um, he keeps himself locked in his room all t at all times and doesn't interact with the body of monks generally. Um, and notice what this means to us. Like when we see him, when the monk from Abdurs talks to him, notice that he is more crass, more sort of mean-spirited. Um, like he calls the, the other monks at uh, Celebesters muddleheads. Um, and like he kind of insults this monk when he approaches him. And in fact, this is regarded as a part of his holiness, um, that he is sort of indirectly uh, showing us the gospel through accusations, through condemnation, through judgment. Um, we also see his claim to fame insofar as he apparently sees demons and reports this. Um, and we're talking, like, when he sees demons, it is very much associated with certain monks. You'll notice that he is not subtly stressing that the monastery is infested with these things, that there were demons sitting on a monk's stomach when he was eating his meal, thus insinuating that this monk was gluttonous in some way. Um, supposedly he was at the, the, you know, in the superior's office, and saw this big demon hiding behind a door, and he apparently, like, caught the tail in the door jam and then, like, crossed it until it disintegrated or something. It's weird. Like, it's not how people usually describe interactions with devils or demons. Um, and the, the monk who's visiting, this Abdorsk monk, apparently accepts it. Like, he doesn't have a problem with this. But he's also biased, and Dostoevsky alerts us to the fact that he doesn't like the institution of elders, he's looking for someone to agree with him, Father Farapon agrees with him, and therefore he's willing to accept Father Farapon's idiosyncrasies despite that. But from our perspective, as much as Farapon is sort of presented without judgment, Dostoevsky doesn't, you know doesn't at any time break character. The narrator is just presenting, reporting what Father Farapon is doing without any sort of condemnation or judgment. We should be alert to this. Dostoevsky doesn't seem to like this guy, and he is not in here for us to like him either. Um, his behavior is against everything that we have sort of been trained to associate with goodness at this point in the novel. Farapon's Christianity may be sincere, but it isn't necessarily not hypocritical as a consequence, if that makes sense. Like, this is how Father Farapont solves his Christianity dilemma. Like, he is going to punish himself, he is going to, you know, be judgmental and condemnatory, he is going to stress the sinfulness of everyone around him. But this isn't necessarily good. Like, lots of Christians do this. This is obviously a long and proud tradition in, in Christian circles. Like, we think frequently of, of 
we associate this frequently with Puritanism, this sort of fire and brimstone, like the judgment of God is on us at all times, or, you know, the, the famous speeches where, you know, the pastor or priest will stand up in front of a crowd and immediately, like, talk about how they're all going to hell, they're all condemned to perdition. Um, and honestly, like, I respect that kind of thinking. It, it needs to happen from time to time. It's the sort of preaching, the sort of Christianity that shakes people out of their complacency. Like, I mean, in the very last lecture I was talking about Kierkegaard and, and mentioning how how much I appreciate the way that he, he talks about Christianity and comparing it to how Smerdyakov does. Um, likewise, I have composed at least one sermon where I am pretty much all fire and brimstone, all condemnation and judgment. It needs to happen from time to time, I think. But in this context, notice that Farapont doesn't do it because of some right that he, or some wrong that he's trying to right. He's just sort of casting aspersions without any sort of guidance, not trying to, you know, correct some evil, but just revealing that evil is everywhere, that all of these monks are sinners. And, you know, Dostoevsky has told us this. Like, he, he said that, you know, the monks are, are struggling with these issues. Like, when they come to the, to the elder's cell to confess, you know, Dostoevsky suggests that some of the monks are making up sins so they can feel, you know, absolved when they are confessed. So they cannot, you know, be chastised for, for not confessing the truth. And, you know, in doing so, Dostoevsky is kind of stressing that this institution of confession is dodgy. Um, like, as much as Dostoevsky has been praising everything that has to do with Zosima and everything that has to do with the way that he behaves, the institution surrounding him, he's not nearly so, so positive about. And he recognizes that as much as, as much as the monks are earnestly trying to be good people, it's a struggle. Some of them succeed and some of them fail. Some of the monks are, you know, acting the way that they do out of pride, while some of the monks are acting out of humility. It's a very fine line to walk. Christianity is not as straightforward as, you know, you follow these five rules, these ten commandments, and you are now holy and sacred and are fine. Like, the whole thing about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is that holiness can itself be a temptation. Um, and because Jesus is flipping the script, because Jesus is exposing the pride that is inherent in holiness, there's sort of this double-sidedness to it. Like, you can be pride in your holiness, proud in your holiness, or you can be proud in your unholiness. Um, like, all of the characters that we've encountered so far frequently play with these distinctions. You know, on the one hand, we have... Um, Characters like Zosima, who are in fact selfless and who are in fact very concerned with others, who are altruistic first and foremost. But here we have Farapont, who is practicing the holiness as a form of pride, who is using this as an opportunity to basically spit venom at people. Um, on the flip side, we have somebody like Fyodor, who revels in his own misery, who you know, takes pleasure, takes pride in his own unholiness. Or Smerdyakov, who, you know, is humble in his nihilism, but who is ultimately rejecting people just as Father Farapont does. This balance between sincerity and hypocrisy is a complicated one, and a very fine line to walk. But at the same time, for Dostoevsky, it seems abundantly clear. It's not in the behavior for Dostoevsky, it's in the intentions. Alyosha is holy and guileless about it, and there is something distinctly good in that. Father Zosima is aware 
of the potential dangers, the aware of the potential hypocrisies, and he cuts through it directly to the pragmatic truth of the matter. Farapont, on the other hand, either because of his isolation or in spite of it, either because of his judgments or in spite of them, Dostoevsky seems to be presenting him as though he is less than honest. He is mean-spirited. The Christian truth of the matter is not in him the way that it is in Zosima or it is in Alyosha. Even the sincerity of characters who are just basically terrible people like Dmitri or like Fyodor, they at least have that sincerity that Zosima lacks, or rather Farapont lacks. Like notice, remember, Zosima specifically praised Ivan for his greatness, for his wrestling with these issues. He praised Dmitri by bowing before him, acknowledging his suffering and his struggle. Farapont would not have done these things. Farapont would have emphasized the evil of these people. Um, if he is emphasizing the evil of people like Father Pacey, the, the superior, who at this point we've not seen a bad thing from him, like even at the end of this chapter, Alyosha notices that Zosima has kind of like given Alyosha Father Pacey as his guide now that Zosima is going to be taken away from him. And Father Pacey emphasizes, you know, protect yourselves from the evils of the world, the evils of science, the evils of ideas. Um, that's like Alyosha takes that to heart. He takes that as meaningful. Pacey is a is not nearly as holy as as totally pragmatically good as Zosima is, but he's a nice person to have. He's helpful. He's you know supportive, encouraging. But Farapont doesn't have a nice word to say about anyone, and that's what makes him dangerous for Dostoevsky. That's why he seems to be distinguished here. If at the end of the day, love is what defines the good people from the evil people in this book, whether they can love Alyosha or not. If Father Farapont's heart is this full of spite, then he is not a Christian by Dostoevsky's estimation. And no amount of fasting, no amount of visions, no amount of identification of faults is going to redeem him in Dostoevsky's eyes. Compassion is the primary virtue here for Dostoevsky. It is consistent throughout this book. Um, the question then is, are you being compassionate or not? Are you hiding, covering over your compassion, the sincerity of your feeling, in which case you can be redeemed and forgiven the way that Ivan and Dmitri and even Fyodor could theoretically be forgiven? Or is that compassion just gone from you, the way it might be with Rakitin or Smerdyakov, or as it seems to be with Farapont? That puts you in the dangerous category, the category of villains, insofar as Dostoevsky has them. And that's not to say that Father Farapon is relentlessly evil. Like, again, he's portrayed here as human. Dostoevsky has compassion for Farapont, even if Farapont wouldn't have given the time of day to Dostoevsky. Half the characters in this book Farapont would condemn, if only because they're, you know, even worse people than the people that Father Farapont clearly is condemning. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that Farapont himself isn't in need of compassion, isn't in need of love. He is acting the way that he does because this is successful to him. This is what Christianity means to him. It's distorted and wrong in so many ways, but it doesn't mean that it's insincere. It's hypocritical in some ways. You can see him, you know, digging at this monk, making fun of him, um, insulting him to his face as well as his order, presumably to, you know, make himself seem more holy, more glorious, but he hasn't processed that. He's not, you know, wrong. He's not unchristian 
because he does it this way, he just doesn't see the truth of the matter. He doesn't see things as simply as Zosima and Alyosha do. Um, we'll come back around to this. Farapont will make a secondary appearance in this book, which will be even more telling than the first. Um, but I do want to move on, because we've got lots of other characters and lots of other problems to talk about here. And I want to start, then, with Theodore, because we finally see him alone. And this is significant. Like, there are a couple of things that set this meeting apart, even though it's only like four or five pages here. It's significant that Fyodor isn't in a crowd, and thus isn't trying to impress anyone. And he isn't drunk. And in fact, this is insisted upon. Dostoevsky and Alyosha both stress the fact that he seems to be kind of hungover and in a bad mood today. And for good reason. Like, his face is all swollen, and he, he's still like a mess from getting beaten up last night by Dimitri. He's in a foul mood, in short. The, the pleasantness of the cognac has worn off. And in some sense, he's a more miserable jerk as a consequence. We see him being honest here. And there's something ironic about this, the fact that he's mean and nasty rather than sort of fun-loving and buffoonish, because in some way he was right way back in book two, when he said that, you know, you wouldn't want to see me in my real natural state. Here we see him in his real natural state, not putting on a show, not pretending to be, you know, a buffoon, not trying to impress everyone, and it sucks. Like, he's just nasty. Um, he has that whole speech about how he's going to crush Dimitri like a cockroach, you know, squish him with his heel and he'll make a little pop the way that the cockroaches do. Like, it's just horrible. Um, and he's specifically saying not that he's going to, like, beat him up or anything. Obviously, Dimitri has the advantage on that front, but he's going to set the authorities on him. That whole line about, you know, it's still not okay under the law. Um, this is on page 174. Of course, in these fashionable times, it's customary to count fathers and mothers as a prejudice, but the law, it seems, even in our time, does not allow people to pull their old fathers by the hair and kick them in the mug with their heels on the floor in their own house and boast about coming back and killing them completely and all in the presence of witnesses, sir. I could break him if I wanted. I could have him put away right now for what he did yesterday. And Alyosha asks him, but you're not going to make a complaint, are you? And he says, Ivan talked me out of it. And he seems bitter about it, resentful. To hell with Ivan. But one thing I do know, and he tells Alyosha, if I had put him away, the scoundrel, she'd hear that I had put him away and go running to him at once. But if she hears today that he beat me, a weak old man within an inch of my life, then maybe she'll drop him and come to visit me. Notice how horrible this is. It's not that he is not, like... On the one hand, there's definitely there would definitely be justice in him actually prosecuting Dimitri, like actually getting the cops to take him in. If anything, it might help everybody at this point. Like it would stop Dimitri from wandering around potentially, you know, attacking and killing his father, but it would also prevent his father from, you know, being able to like say such horrible things about Dimitri. But notice the reasoning here. It's for her. It's for Agrafina. It's for Grushenka. Um Grushenka would take pity on Dmitri if he had him locked up and would drive Grushenka closer to Dmitri, and that's why Fyodor doesn't do it. Instead, he's playing the victim here. He is going to play up the fact that his son came in and kicked him within an inch of his life, and as a consequence, Grushenka will take pity on him, Fyodor, and possibly come over to his side. Like, 
even in this moment when he's hating Dmitri, it's all about screwing him over. It's all about getting one over on Grushenka. It's all wheels within wheels, selfishness and, and just nastiness. Um, he even talks about Ivan negatively here. Like, up until now, we've seen these glimpses of danger from Ivan. Like, Fyodor is afraid of Ivan. We've heard him say this a couple of times. And we've seen Ivan, the dark side of Ivan, like kicking Maximov out of the carriage or getting very short with his own father or, you know, sort of revealing his hand and his discussion with, with Smerdyakov in sort of denying the existence of any Christ truth to Christianity. We've seen all of this, but now it seems that Fyodor is not only just, you know, afraid of him, but hates him, resents him in some way. Um, it's just, like, he doesn't even acknowledge him as a Karamazov. Where did he come from? He's not our kind at all. Why should I leave him anything? I won't even leave a will, let it be known to you. Like, he stresses that he's going to keep all of his money until the very day that he dies, and he's going to squander and spend every kopeck of what he's got, and he's going to live for 20 more years out of pure spite to his entire family. He's going to screw over Dmitri because he hates him and wants to squash him like a cockroach. He's going to screw over Ivan because Ivan is no son to him. He's all dry and dusty and, and doesn't have the heart of a Karamazov. Like... These are horrible things that he's saying about his family. And he doesn't even have the kind of kindness to Alyosha that we came to expect. The one sort of moment of warmth we see between the two of them is Alyosha goes up to kiss him, and the old man responds with incredulity. What are you doing? We'll still see each other, or do you think we won't? And Alyosha responds, not at all, I just did it for no reason. And he says, and me too, I just did it... The old man looked at him. Listen, he called after him. Come sometime soon, do you hear? For fish soup. I'll make fish soup. A special one, not like today. You must come. Listen, come tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. And he's already drinking again. Notice he's just mean and terrible to everyone in this scene. Like, we finally see the true version of Fyodor Karamazov, and he's every bit of what he, what he told us he would be. But at the same time, when Alyosha shows compassion to him, he breaks. He, he cracks. Like, he doesn't understand. And that toughness, that nastiness, almost immediately falls off of him. Um, just as Father Zosimov predicted, as, as the elders said, you know, you just need to be loved. You're not evil, you're twisted, Alyosha says to him. Um, it seems that what he needs is just an honest show of compassion. And that's what Alyosha does. That's why everyone loves Alyosha the way that they do. Because he is just kind, generous. He hugs people. And that's really all it takes. He's not putting on some show. He's not pretending to be something he's not. He's not, you know, disguising himself with layers of lies the way that Fyodor or Ivan or Dmitri all are at various times in this novel. Alyosha just is what he is. He He's what he is on the box. Like, it says, nice guy, and what you get is a nice guy. And it's really as simple as that. Now, we're going to skip Chapter 3 for now, because I find it more relevant to talk about that when we actually get to Captain Snegorov in, in uh, Chapter 6. So we're going to talk about the Koklikovs and what goes on there. Um, and the one thing that we do need to mention about the whole business with the school children before we get to it is the fact that Alyosha walks into the Koklikovs rather seriously injured. Um, 
Ilyusha bit him on the finger, and it's like a nasty bite. Dostoevsky says that it goes all the way down to the bone, so like he's bleeding profusely. Um, Ilyusha wraps his finger in a handkerchief, and it's like completely bled through by the time he makes it to the Koklikovs. And as a result, everybody fusses over him. Madame Koklikov and both Lisa and Lisa also like immediately are asking what happened and trying to help him and, and bandaging up his finger and they're trying to apply like ointments and stuff. Um, and it's significant that like Madame Koklikov, we get this whole kind of comical situation where she's talking about Herzenstub, the doctor, this German doctor who is apparently the one doctor who lives in town. Um, and we make fun of him throughout. Like, we actually get the, this opening of the joke at the Koklikovs where Madame Koklikov says that um, apparently every time that Herzenstub comes, comes over, um, he says that he can make nothing of it. Like, we get this passage on page 181. And no wonder, Lisa, no wonder, your caprices will have me in hysterics too. But anyway, Alexei Fyodorovich, she's so sick. She was sick all night, in a fever, moaning. I could hardly wait for morning in Herzenstube. He says he can make nothing of it, and that we should wait. Miss Herbens Herzenstube always comes and says he can make nothing of it. As soon as you neared the house, she screamed and had a fit and demanded to be taken here to her old room. And we know why. Like, Koplikov apparently thinks this is some part of her ailment. Like, the same thing that's causing her legs to be paralytic is causing her to have these hysterics, these fits. But we know that the reason why is because Lisa is love-struck with Alyosha, and this is potentially, like, going to reveal the situation. It, like, notice that Lisa gets really panicky and demands the letter back from Alyosha, and Alyosha doesn't have it with him. That wasn't the plan. He wasn't actually going to, like, out her to her family. Um, and Lisa contrives to get Alyosha alone. Like, they talk together about this. And Alyosha even notices that it's significant to her, this, this time that she gets with him. Um, but at the same time, nothing happens. Like, Lisa is, now that she's got Alyosha, she doesn't know what to do with him. Um, there's no, you know, professions of love. There's she, she instead rejects it all, denies it. Oh, it was just a joke. Like, give me the letter. It's just a silly joke. And, and Alexia's like, no, it wasn't. You know, like, you really care about me. And he even fairly honestly and honestly kind of cruelly uh, tells her that, no, like, we can totally do this. Like, we'll get married. I don't love you right now, but I'm sure I'll figure, out, figure that out later. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, Seriously, Alyosha? Like, you haven't figured out that maybe something nicer would go over a little bit better with this obviously hysterically desperate girl? But at the same time, it's Alyosha. Of course he's going to be just blatantly honest. Like, just almost tactlessly honest. And yet, still kind. Like, he's not mean about it. There's nothing wrong with what he says to her. Um, it's just significant that, like, it isn't what she wants to hear. Like, look at the passage on page 184, very top of the page. Um, Lisa accuses him uh, of, of not of insulting her, that, you know, he believes her completely, he takes it seriously, he didn't laugh at her, and she's like, no, this is all a joke, you're, you're just insulting me. And he responds, no, not at all. As soon as I read it, I thought at once that that was how everything would be. Um, because as soon as the Elder Zosima dies, I must immediately leave the monastery. Then I'll finish my studies and pass the exam, and when the legal time comes, we'll get married. I will love you. Though I haven't had much time to think yet, I don't think I could find a better wife than you, and the Elder told me to get married. And, like, notice how totally guileless he is here. There's no 
coquettishness. There's no flirtation. It's just, no, that makes sense. Like, you loving me? Yeah, we can make this work. I'll marry you. We'll think, I will love you, he says. Um, and he means it. He, he wants that. This makes sense to him. Like, all of Lisa's honesty, she has wrapped up into this ball of anxieties and concerns and worries. And, you know, she's going back on it. She's denying it because she's scared and she doesn't want to be hurt. But for Alyosha, this is just simple and straightforward. Yeah, we can get married. I don't see any reason why not. It fits with my plan, in short. Um, the elder told me to get married, and why not you? I can't think of anyone better. And Lisa, you know, brings up the rather obvious reason why they can't get married. I'm a freak. I'm driven around in a wheelchair. And Alyosha immediately replies, I'll wheel you around myself, but I'm sure you'll be well by then. Like, just the confidence there. Alyosha's just totally at peace with the world. Um, why wouldn't it be this way? Why couldn't we have this kind of relationship? Um, and it's strange, especially in the context of all the Karamazovs we've run into. You know, Fyodor literally just told us about how Ivan wasn't one of them, that he has no passion, that he doesn't have the same love that defines uh, Fyodor and Ivan's careers. And at the same time, we, the breeder, kind of know that he does. Like, the elders also have very much picked this out of him, said that, you know, he's struggling with these big ideas, these big problems, and literally in the very next chapter, we're going to see Ivan does, in fact, love Katerina Ivanovna, and it hurts him that she doesn't reciprocate, but he does control it better than Fyodor and Dmitri does. It doesn't mean he doesn't feel, it just means that he doesn't, he manages to contain it better. But on the other hand, Alyosha, Alyosha's the real aberration here. Alyosha, he does feel. Like, we shouldn't reject that, but he doesn't feel love in the sense of lust. He doesn't have these overwhelming passions that take control of him and sort of turn to his own selfish desires. He does have overwhelming passions. We've seen him get overwhelmed on multiple occasions. We see him get overwhelmed here when he's trying to fix what's going on with Ivan and Katerina Ivanovna. We see him overwhelmed again when he's talking to Captain Snegirov. He's been overwhelmed frequently in his discussions with Father Zosima or with the other members of his family. He is overwhelmed by his compassion by his love for others, by his real and true altruism. Fyodor, on the one hand, loves himself, wants passionately to please himself, and Dmitri does as well. He feels these deep and abiding passions for the women that he encounters. Ivan feels this deep and abiding passion to solve the problems that plague him, and Alyosha, as much as he has no feeling for this woman who he literally is planning to marry at this point, as much as that seems not Karamazovian, on the other hand, it is distinctly Karamazovian because his passion is elsewhere. His passion is for everyone. He does love Lisa in some sense, but he loves her in the same way that he loves his brothers and his father and everyone he encounters. The way that he loves everyone. He has that kind of love. And he's inherited that very much from the 
from the other Zosima, who also has that sort of universal, compassionate love. Not in some, you know, aesthetic sense or intellectual sense. You know, we talked about how Musov says that, like, he feels this compassion for humanity, but he hates the individual humans. No, both Alyosha and the Elder Zosima express their universal love by loving everyone individually. Um, it's not an abstraction for that. It is practical. It is immediate. Um, which makes it all the more painful that here in, the, in our strain in the drawing room, Alyosha makes his first big mistake. Um, notice it is a tense situation here in the drawing room. Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan Fyodorovich are talking to each other, and Alyosha notices right from the beginning it's weird. There is a strain here. Now, we've been prompted by Madame Koklikov to interpret this in a certain way. Koklikov has specifically told us that Katerina Ivanovna is straining to love Dmitry Fyodorovich, even though she doesn't actually. That this is all just conjured for herself, that she believes she has to love him and doesn't really love him in truth. And as a consequence, Koklikov also concludes that she must love Ivan. But Koklikov has never been a great student of human nature, and we have no reason to believe that she would get this one right, since she can't even pick up on the relationship between Lisa and, and Alyosha at this point. So this could just be foolishness, and we're not quite sure what to think. As for Alyosha, he's trying to parse it as well, and he's not getting anywhere either. On the one hand, it does seem that Katerina Ivanovna has given up on Dmitri to some degree. Um, she stresses, you know, you were a witness yesterday to that horror. And notice that this is not because of Grushenka offending her, but because Dmitri told Grushenka about the fact that Dmitri had lured Katerina Ivanovna with the promise of money and then sent her off with this. This was supposed to be their secret, and Dmitri confided this to Grushenka, and Dmitri admits this. Like Alyosha mentions it to him that in the, the last section, she, he says that Katerina Ivanovna was very offended by the fact that Dmitri had let slip her secret. And for Dmitri, it's like, oh yeah, I did say that. Like, it didn't even occur to him that this would be important to Katerina Ivanovna. Again, he was caught up in his passion. He was just telling everything to Grushenka, probably unloading his soul the way that he unloaded it on, on Alyosha just a little while ago. So Katerina Ivanovna as a consequence of Dmitri betraying her, is ready to cut everything off with him. Um, that was the horror that she's talking about. You did not see it, Ivan Fyodorovich, she goes on, but he did. What he thought of me yesterday, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that if the same thing were to repeat itself today, now, I should express the same feelings as yesterday. The same feelings, the same words, and the same movements. You remember my movements, Alexei Fyodorovich. You yourself restrained me in one of them. And saying that she blushes, her eyes flash. I declare to you, Alexei Fyodorovich, that I cannot be resolved with anything. Reconciled with anything. Listen, Alexei Fyodorovich, I do not even know whether I love him now. He has become pitiful to me, which is a poor sign of love. If I loved him, if I still loved him, then perhaps I should not pity him now, but on the contrary, should hate him. And Alyosha says to himself, this girl is truthful and sincere, and she no longer loves Dmitri. Maybe Katerina Ivanovna did love Dmitri yesterday, but it is evaporated, vanished, all because of this betrayal. So Alyosha is recalculating here, like, okay, so if she doesn't love Dmitri, then what's going on here? But I think we're looking for an answer where there is no answer to be found. 
So Alyosha does in fact try and get at this at one point. Um, so we get this long discussion and, and Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan Fyodorovich are going back and forth and Alyosha notices that Ivan gets mean about this. Ivan has this speech at the top of page 190. Yes, yes, Ivan interrupted with a sort of sudden passion, clearly angry that he had been interrupted. Yes, and in another woman, this moment would be only yesterday's impression, and no more than a moment. But with Katerina Ivanovna's character, this moment will last all her life. What for others would be just a promise is for her an everlasting, heavy, perhaps grim, but unfailing duty, and she will be nourished by this feeling of fulfilled duty. Your life, Katerina Ivanovna, will now be spent in the suffering contemplation of your own feelings, of your own high deed in your own grief, but later the suffering will mellow, and your life will turn into the sweet contemplation of a firm and proud design, fulfilled once and for all, truly proud in its own way, and desperate in any case, but which you have carried through, and this awareness will finally bring you the most complete satisfaction, and will reconcile you to all the rest. Katerina Ivanovna has said, I can't love Dmitri, but I will take care of him. I will protect him. I will give him all that I can. I will make sure that he is happy. And Ivan bristles, is upset. Of course you're going to do that. Of course that is the only high and mighty solution that you could possibly undertake under the circumstances. And notice that the narrator tells us he spoke decidedly with a sort of malice, evidently deliberate, and even perhaps not wishing to conceal his intentions. That is, that he was speaking deliberately and in mockery. Ivan is mad that Katerina Ivanovna has literally been betrayed by this man. And yet she's still devoting all of her attention, all of her affection, all of her focus on him. She cannot love him anymore, and yet she still acts like she loves him. She still behaves, still does all the things that a lover would do. And this strain, this decision to love Dimitri in spite of herself, this is what's driving everybody nuts at this point. Everybody. Madame Koklikov has picked up on it, and as insincerely or imperfectly as she has. Ivan is obviously mad about it. Katerina Ivanovna probably doesn't even know what she's saying at this point. She's just, you know, trying to get this feeling out of herself. Finally, Ivan is like, I'm taken off, and she suddenly mellows. Like, she's suddenly happy to hear this, and is like, oh yes, I'm not happy that you're going, but I, I want to be a perfect friend to you, and, you know, and Alyosha is just like, totally beside himself with all of this and finally confesses, I really don't know how I dare to say all this now, but someone has to speak the truth because no one here wants to speak the truth. And Katerina Ivanovna asks, what truth? And he answers, this truth, Alyosha stammered, as if throwing himself off the roof. Call Dmitri now. I'll go and find him and let him come here and take you by the hand and then take my brother Ivan by the hand and let him, meaning Dmitri, unite your hands. For you were tormenting Ivan only because you love him, and you were tormenting him because you love Dmitri from strain, not in truth, because you've convinced yourself of it. And Alyosha suddenly broke off and fell silent. You, you, you're a little holy fool, that's what you are, Katerina Ivanovna suddenly snapped, her face pale now, and her lips twisted in anger. Ivan Fyodorovich suddenly laughed and got up from his seat, his hat was in his hand. You were mistaken, my good Alyosha, he said, with an expression on his face that Alyosha had never seen there before, an expression of some youthful sincerity and strong, irresistibly frank emotion. Here we finally see Ivan speaking from the heart, speaking passionately. Katerina Ivanovna has never loved me, he says. She knew all along that I loved her, though I never said a word to her about my love. She knew, but she did not love me, nor have I been her friend, not even once, not even for one day. 
The proud woman did not need my friendship. She kept me near her for constant revenge. She took revenge on me and was revenged through me for all the insults she'd endured continually and every moment throughout all this time from Dimitri. Insults that started with their very first meeting. Notice, Ivan is a victim here. He does, in fact, love Katerina Ivanovna. He does, in fact, want to marry her. But Katerina Ivanovna, she's torn. On the one hand, she does love Dmitri, does feel strongly about her, or about him, and Ivan identifies this. He says it's because he insults her. If he stopped insulting her, she would drop him immediately. It's only because Katerina Ivanovna is so proud, and only Dmitri can debase her in any way, can bring her down from her high horse, that she cares about him. And as a consequence, because of this complex relationship of debasement and pride, she revenges herself on Ivan. Knowing that she hurts him, she does it deliberately so as to retain that power. She takes the pain she feels from Dimitri, the indignity, the suffering, and she imposes it on Ivan, revenges herself on him. And Ivan knows this and accepts it willingly takes it on because he does in fact love her, and it means that he gets to spend time with her. It's warped. And Katerina Ivanovna is not a saint here, not by any extent of the imagination. We talked about, like, her pride and how, you know, things get downright nasty in her interaction with Grushenka. It's even nastier here in some sense. Katerina Ivanovna is a monster in a lot of ways. Not because she's a terrible person, but because she's hurting, because she's proud and she has no way of remaining proud of herself, because she has demeaned herself before Dimitri, because Dimitri holds this over her, and the only way that she can get back at him is by taking care of him forever and by revenging herself on Ivan. And notice that that's their relationship at this point. Dimitri, on the one hand, is suffering terribly because he borrowed this money or took this money from Katerina Ivanovna and then effectively stole it. He is suffering over this, and the 3000 all he needs is to return it to her, and he'll be out of her debt, and he can put that part of his life behind her and, you know, restore himself in his own image. But for Katerina Ivanovna, that same 3000 is necessary. It's, what, it's the power she holds over him. She is, in some way, manipulating the entire Karamazov family, and Alyosha picks up on this. He was wrong, what he said, about having Dmitri join her hands with Ivan's. Not necessarily wrong insofar as, you know, this would not be a good solution, but certainly wrong in that this is what, would, what needed to be said right now. Alyosha was honest, and he might even have been right, but... He still made a terrible mistake in saying it when he did and saying it how he did. And Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan's immediate dismissal of him just proves that to him. He's burning over this. He has made a terrible mistake and is thus very embarrassed. And I think this is actually a really important moment for our understanding of Alyosha. So far, again, we've talked about both Elder Zosima and... Alyosha, their superpower in this novel is that they can cut to the truth of what's going on here. Um, and Alyosha has made a misstep. He's made a typical misstep. He has tried to cut to the truth of what's going on here, but either he didn't understand it, and clearly he did not understand the fullness of it, or his truth was just not welcome in this particular situation. Either way, he screwed up. 
Sometimes speaking the truth, even in love, isn't the right answer. Sometimes people are so twisted into knots by their own difficult situations that they can't be unraveled, even by the most plain-speaking truth. Maybe the Elder Zosima could have solved this dilemma if he had been here instead of Alyosha. Maybe some better, wiser thing could be said, but more, what is more likely is he would have remained silent, or he would have done something more directly demonstrative, the way that Alyosha kisses his father on his way out the door, thus changing the entire state of the scene. Maybe if Alyosha had just hugged someone, either Ivan or Katerina, that would have been more effective. But instead, he tried to speak the truth, and here it broke down. They didn't want to hear it, whether because it was not the truth, or because truth wasn't welcome. But as much as I do want to sort of, like, try and untangle this, I don't think it's here to be untangled. Because the minute Al Ivan leaves, Katerina apparently dissolves in hysterics, and she's freaking out, and Madame Koklikov assures us that this is actually what's supposed to happen, and, you know, she understands women, and women are always wrong in this, and it's just, it's unparsable in a lot of ways. It's human. This is indeed how people behave, but it isn't rational. It's not something that can be solved. Both Lisa and Katerina Ivanovna are behaving very irrationally, and part of that is because they have strong feelings that they don't know what to do with. And that's not to say that this is a woman thing. Notice that, again, Dmitri, Ivan, Fyodor, they're all doing ridiculous things, but they, at the end of the day, somehow manage to explain it with the peculiar nonsense masculine logic that Dostoevsky specializes in. Here, it's a little bit less reasonable, it's a little bit less logical, it's a little bit less parsable, it's a little bit more difficult to understand what the heck is going through Katerina Ivanovna's mind, or at least it is for me, presumably because I'm not a woman. But then again, Dostoevsky isn't either. And it is kind of hard to say whether this is just bitches be crazy, so to speak, or this is actual insight on the part of Dostoevsky. It's very easy to sort of write this off as a trope, to sort of relegate this to, you know, yet another 19th century white dude failing to understand women. But at the same time, sometimes people don't make sense. And it would make sense for Katerina Ivanovna to be in that position. Her character is complex, and there's a great deal of layers, a great deal of dimensionality to it. This is not just some throwaway stereotype here. Haughty women are, in fact, a trope of a great many novels in the 19th century. It's a thing, but Katerina Ivanovna's haughtiness very much complicates her more than simplifies her. It leads her into these paradoxes and difficulties and these very strained relationships, as Dostoevsky is putting it here. But we have one more thing to say about Katerina Ivanovna. Namely, she then gives Alyosha 200 rubles to give to Captain Snegirov. And this is where things take a very strange turn, but a very important one for Dostoevsky. In many ways, I don't think the scenes with Katerina Ivanovna work all that well. Like, I don't find them to be terribly potent or terribly characteristic of Dostoevsky's writing, or even that terribly insightful, much as the characters are fascinating to sort of inquire about. But what Dostoevsky does have a very clear eye for is what we're going to be talking about now. Captain Snegirov, Ilyusha, and the poverty that is also taking place in this town. Dostoevsky was famed for being a realist, and especially praised for his assessment of how poor people get along. Like his first novel, Poor Folk, everybody praised the skies. 
And I think on one level, it's kind of an easy out, the way that Dostoevsky defaults to talking about poverty here. But on the other hand, he does it so well, and he does it so meaningfully. The characters are not just boiled down to stereotypes. They're not simplistic. There is comedy and there is tragedy, both in the way that he talks about them here. This is old ground for Dostoevsky. Like, you can see these sorts of scenes in virtually every major novel he wrote. Um, but here in Karamazov, it's, if anything, even more especially memorable, because it is so clear what he's trying to do. So we saw in the earlier scene that we skipped over the schoolboys and their sort of Alyosha's encounter with them. How he's walking along minding his own business and he sees that there's like this knot of maybe half a dozen kids who are apparently throwing rocks at this other kid in a ditch. And when Alyosha approaches the kids, he can somehow like magically immediately identify with them. Like he gives them this line about apparently like they're carrying their school bags on the right side. And he's like, hey, we used to have the same bags, but we used to carry them on the left because it was easier to get into the bag. And they're like, actually, he's left-handed, so that's why he carries it on the right. And this apparently is like, Dostoevsky even like makes a line about it, that this is the perfect way to talk to children because, you know, it immediately, it immediately means that you're talking on their level. Um, there's both truth and nonsense to this, I think. Like, heaven forbid that I start claiming to be an expert on the way to talk to children. I, I've definitely screwed up my fair share of interactions with kids. But I do recognize the truth of the matter. Like, yeah, you talk to kids on their level. You, you don't belittle them. You don't baby talk them. You don't, you know, like as much as they will absolutely light up if you ask them questions like how old are you or what are you studying in school or, you know, you get interested in what they're interested in. On the other hand, if you talk to them straight, they will talk to you straight. They will, you know, they will absolutely just talk your ear off if you are legitimately interested and not just sort of putting on a show for them. Kids know the difference. And Alyosha does talk to them on the same level. And some of that may just be because Alyosha is, in fact, young. Like, Lisa even makes fun of him after he comes to the Kokhnikov saying, oh, you're no more than a boy yourself. Um, but on the other hand, like, the other thing about this is that Alyosha does just legit listen to them. He is interested. Um, and he's the wrong person in the case of Ilyusha. But Smurov especially responds well to him, and they try and explain what's going on. Not terribly well. They're still secretive, and they're still kids at the end of the day. So when Alyosha is like, well, why are you picking on him? And they're like, well, he stabbed Krasotkin in the leg with a pen knife. And you're like, whoa, what the heck did this kid do? Like, Alyosha is trying to defuse this situation, and really, it seems like they have a legitimate grievance against this kid. Um, on the one hand, he's like, guys, you can't just throw rocks at him six on one, you're going to kill him. Um, but on the other hand, the kids are like, well, he stabbed someone. And it's like, well, all right, well, what are you going to say to that? Like, how do you argue against this? There is justice in their, you know, violence in this particular case. Um, but Ilyusha, on the other hand, is fascinating to sort of examine in this case. Because on the one hand, Alyosha does try to reach out to him, try to talk to him, try to understand what's going on here. But Ilyusha refuses to hear anything of it. Uh, first he throws a rock at him, then he throws a rock at his head, and Alyosha fends it off and is like, why are you attacking me? Why do you even, you know, what did I ever do to you? I've never even met you before. At which point Alyosha literally bites him down to the bone as we hear this absolutely vicious attack. And Alyosha is forced to admit that it's got to be something personal. Everyone knows this. Like, the other kids even sort of 
tell him about it. They're like, ask him about the whisk broom. And Alyosha's like, I'm not going to do that. It's obvious you're making fun of him over the whisk broom. I don't know what the whisk broom is or what the whisk, why he hates the whisk broom so much, but obviously if I bring that up, it's just going to make the matters worse. And where the kids would likely, would should, I would hope, tell him what's going on, explain the situation, they know that if they do, they're going to get in trouble too. So naturally, Alyosha, being an authority figure, is not safe to talk to, so they just leave. They walk away. What we find out, like, this is framed as a mystery for a couple of chapters until finally Katerina Ivanovna sort of reveals what's going on and we see the connection. And this is a particularly poignant connection at that. The whisk broom, the, you know, like, this weird thing that they're taunting Ilyusha about, refers to Captain Snegorov's beard. And Captain Snegorov is that same random captain who Fyodor got, or Fyodor Pyotrovich and Agrafina Alexievna got to deliver the message to Dmitri that he owed the money and therefore, you know, couldn't go to Grushenka's that day. At which point Dmitri pulled him out of the tavern by his beard and basically beat him in public. And I want to sort of point at a few things here. We talked about this briefly in the second section when they're talking about this at the monastery. It's sort of a blink and you'll miss it sort of reference. Um, but like there's this scene where Fyodor is like, and he's beating up random captains. And Dimitri's like, I didn't beat up a random captain. You made him do that. You were using him to try and throw me off the trail. So of course I thrashed him. But notice at no point is this any more than a pawn to either of these characters. For Fyodor and for Dimitri, there's no name behind this person. There's just this person. He's just a tool. He's just a playing piece in their dramas, in their, their sort of paternal rivalry. But here we get a name. We get a person. We get Captain Snegirov, a disgraced former captain who was apparently kicked out of the military for reasons we don't understand. And as a consequence, he has fallen on hard times. His household, like, he used to be of the nobility. Not high-ranking nobility, but nobility all the less. And now he lives in this one room, his castle, as he repeatedly calls it, with his two daughters, both of which are, you know, variously... I don't want to say deformed, because that is a very negative connotation. But the term that he uses is crippled. Uh, for the one, and hunchbacked for the other. Like, they're both in bad shape. Um, as well as his son, Ilyusha, who we've met, and who recently bit Alyosha's finger to the bone, and his wife, Irina Prakovna. Um, and all five of these people are living in this crappy little one room, and Captain Snegorov apparently has just lost his job again because of the whole incident with Dmitri and Fyodor. Like, being thrashed in public means that he's lost his job. Everybody recognizes that he is disgraced. His, you know, he used to be a scrivener, but they can't keep him on because he is disgracing the firm. There are consequences here. And I, that's one of the key things that Dostoevsky is very much driving home. Oftentimes, there will be characters who are suffering poverty for one reason or another, like... In Crime and Punishment especially, we get this whole relationship with the, this one family that has fallen on hard times, but it's just, 
it's just random that Dostoevsky or that Dostoevsky's Raskolnikov runs into them. Like he just happens to be at the tavern where where this is going down, and he sort of ingratiates himself into their lives. Here we see a clear consequence, a clear cause and effect. Dmitri and Fyodor's feud has ruined this man's life, has destroyed it, has cut off all hope. And what's more, because Ilyusha and his school friends were on the way home and saw his father thrown out of the tavern, pulled out by his beard by Dmitri and thrashed right there in public, Ilyusha is shamed in front of his friends. And now he's getting into fights, and he's causing trouble at school, and he's stabbing people and getting rocks thrown at him, all in an effort to try and defend his father's lost pride. And there's something just so painfully tragic about this that he's not even a footnote in the discussion of, of Fyodor and, and Dmitri when they're arguing about this at the monastery. Like, he's a two-line reference at best, and now Dostoevsky has sort of drawn back the curtain for us and shown us, no, this is a person. A person whose life has been utterly ruined, utterly destroyed, who is no longer able to even hold on to a shred of his pride because of this ridiculous, stupid, stupid feud. People are suffering as a consequence. And at the same time, as I said last time, that there's like a frivolity to everything that's going on here. Titanic battle of good and evil, but it's also silly and ridiculous. Silly and ridiculous comes with consequences too. And this scene where we see, you know, Snegurov sort of introducing Alyosha to the tenants of his castle, um, getting very offended when Alyosha, you know, he supposes that Alyosha wants him to beat Ilyusha, um, and he refuses. He's like, no, and I suppose that you'll want me to cut off his fingers as well, since he bit yours. And Alyosha's like, no, I don't want any of that. Like, I, I, I see that you're upset, and but seriously, like, I'm not here to offend you. I'm not here to demean you. I'm not here to demand compensation. I'm not here for any of that. And in fact, I'm sorry. Like, Alyosha apologizes to him, because of course Alyosha apologizes to him. He recognizes what's going on here. He doesn't want to be held responsible for this family's misery, for their suffering, and he's sorry that Dmitri did, and he's sure that Dmitri will be sorry, too. Like, he promises him that. If Dmitri, too, is sorry, and he would come here and bow before you and apologize profusely, like, not, you know, apparently Dmitri challenged this man to a duel, and he shot it down because, again, wisely, he has acknowledged that if he dies in a duel, which he's undoubtedly going to do, Dmitri is a strong, strapping, capable marksman, and he's just some retired captain who barely even remembers how to fire a gun. Like, if he dies, what's going to happen to his family? He can't afford to fight a duel. But at the same time, that's the only solution in this case. That's the only way that Ilyusha will respect his father again. Like, he's in this utterly impossible situation, and he's nervous and anxious and suffering as a consequence. Throughout this entire scene, we see his, his fragility, like the smallness of him, the fact that he's desperately trying to hold the little bits of his pride together again. And I know on the one hand that we talk a lot now in the 20th century about toxic masculinity and the fragility of the male ego, and we talk about this in, in some sort of negative way, like it's all bad news. Men should not have these sorts of things. Um, this fragility of the male ego is a con contribution to the toxic masculinity. And to some degree, everyone is right. Like, men really need to do 
to get over themselves and not, you know, get offended at the slights and or have to one-up each other in public. Like, I, I'm, I have every bit as sick as male, of male competitiveness and, and aggression in social circumstances as anyone, for sure. And I like to think that I am largely above all this. But I also recognize that it goes deeper than this. That is... In this world, yes, it doesn't make sense for men to be protected, for men to, you know, talk about honor, for men to be egomaniacs. But at the same time, Snegirov is not an egomaniac. He has pride because everybody in his family takes pride in him. He can't talk to his son because his son doesn't respect him anymore. That's more than toxic masculinity or ego or any of that. That's way deeper. He's proud because he has to be proud. Because his son is literally getting his ass handed to him. It, he's literally going to get killed. Like, he's apparently come home after getting hit with this rock in his chest. And now he has a fever and we're not sure if there are internal injuries or something. Like, this is really a life and death matter. And... You know, as much as, again, we talk about this toxic masculinity, but this is not such an easy thing to just reject, to dismiss. Like, I think of, you know, Donald Glover's Atlanta. There's one particular episode which talks about, you know, these, these kids in middle school. Um, and there's this scene where, like, Donald Glover's character is, you know, he just got this new shirt. And the shirt isn't legitimate, and he's figuring this out as the episode goes on. And as a consequence, he's in danger. People might beat him up because he's buying cheap, off-the-rack knockoffs of the real clothes that he's wearing. And there's this really striking moment where he's talking to this white kid, and the white kid's like, what's the big deal? It's just a shirt. And as much as we're inclined to agree, yes, clothes don't matter. Yes, male fragility. Yes, kids should be should not be held up to these standards. Somebody should step in. Somebody should prevent the beating. Some, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a whit. Because they're not living in that world. The white kid is totally oblivious to everything that's going on here. The shirt does matter. The shirt is life and death. And it becomes evident over the course of this episode. Like, the kid who does, in fact, get accused of having the knockoff shirt does, in fact, kill himself. This is absolutely, dreadfully important. And Captain Snigarov's pride is indeed as significant as his life in this case. Because when it comes right down to it, that's the choice that he's faced with. They walk out to the rock, and Captain Snegorov explains, like, he's been taking Ilyusha out to this rock ever since he got shamed in public. And the first day, it's all about, you know, I'm so upset, and I'm going to take him out myself. And I'm dream like, Ilyusha dreams of being able to revenge himself on Dmitri, and he's going to take out his sword, he's going to hold him down, and then he's going to say, I forgive you, and that will be the great shame of all. Like, I was better than this man who shamed my father. But on the second day, 
Now he's just miserable, and we have to talk about other things to get his mind off of it. Maybe we'll move away. Maybe we'll get a horse and a cart, and we'll just pack up your all of the family, and we'll go to some far village, and we'll start all over again. Like, this is the amount of damage that has happened here. Because of this ridiculous feud between Fyodor and Dmitri, now this entire family is like, we have to pick up and start all over from scratch. And at the same time, it's impossible. It's not something he can do. It's so far from their financial ability that Captain Stekarov knows that this is just some ridiculous dream. So on the third day, he takes the kid out again, and he won't talk at all. He's just dead silent. And when he finally does speak, he just weeps. Both of them just weep. And he confesses this to Alyosha, because of course everybody confesses this to Alyosha. They both weep. And he says, I wish that that hadn't happened. And of course we wish that that hadn't happened. God, why did it happen? It was stupid and pointless. And it was just this power struggle between this power-mad, ego-mad old man and his son who, it's just, get over yourself. This is, on the one hand, caused by the same toxic masculinity, but on the other hand, what is going on here at the core, you can't deny it. You can't reject it. You can't just dismiss it out of hand and say, boys will be boys, or this is just stupid boy stuff, or we need to reform the culture and change the way that men think about themselves. Like, on some level, yeah, that would be great, but until that happens, this is real. This is, every bit is real. And notice Captain Snegorov does get the choice. Alyosha comes up to him and he says, Katerina Ivanovna, who has also been offended by Dmitri, offers you this sum, 200 rubles. And Captain Snegorov takes it. And he starts thinking about all the things that he can do. Well, we can get the baths that we need for the hunchback. And we can, you know, get the, the treatment, the, the cure, the Herzenstub, who otherwise, of course, could not make anything of it for my other daughter, and we can, you know, actually get the horse and cart, we can move to another village, and I can pay off my debts, and we can change the way our life works. I can fix this. With this money, I can actually make my family happy again. We can all live together peaceably. And Alyosha, he's excited about it. He's like, yes, absolutely. And if you need more money, by all means, talk to me. I have some money. I can give it to you. Or Katrina Ivanova will give it to you. And this is his second mistake. Because at this, the captain pales and realizes what's happened. Because Ilyusha accused him of this. When Dmitri beat him in public and then threatened him or asked for a duel, like, instead he pays him off. He says, here's ten rubles, just go take it and get out of here. And is like, no, you can't accept the ten rubles. And Captain Stangrov didn't, of course, we're not going to take ten rubles for the shame that has occurred in public. But now, here's Alyosha, Dmitri's brother, trying to pay him off. Maybe not ten rubles, but two hundred. This is a big deal. Two hundred rubles goes a long way in this town. This means the difference between, you know, this poverty, this poor, pathetic castle that he calls it because of his pride, because of the irony, his shame, all of this sort of wrapped up together into this ironic nomenclature, that my castle, you saw my castle, this dirty, squalid room where even the light can't penetrate, where there's only, like, room for two beds and the people are all sitting there miserably. He would rather have that. Because how else is he supposed to go back to his family and say, yes, I took the money from Alyosha? His son will die if he does that. 
He's already got the fever. He's already acting out. He's already utterly ashamed of his father. And they're fighting for some tiny scrap of recognition, some tiny scrap of pride here. And if he accepts the money, then there's nothing. No pride. Maybe they will have stability. Maybe they will be able to get the doctor to come and look at the two girls and be able to get the cures for them. Maybe they will be able to leave town and start all over again, but it won't change the fact that his son is never going to respect him. And he will never be able to respect himself. So he crumples up the bills and he stomps on them. That's what I think of your money, he says. And at the same time as we sort of see this, this moment, this sort of terrible pride, we also acknowledge that this is the right thing to do. Like, notice the way that Dostoevsky closes the scene. There's your money, sir. There's your money, sir. There's your money, sir. There's your money, sir. He says as he's stomping on the bills. Suddenly he leaped back and straightened up before Alyosha. His whole figure presented a picture of inexplicable pride. Report to those who sent you that the whisk broom does not sell his honor, sir, he cried out, raising his arm in the air. And he quickly turned and broke into a run, but he had not gone even five steps when, turning all the way around, he suddenly made a gesture to Alyosha with his hand, presumably something rude. Then, before he had gone even five more steps, he turned around again, this time for the last time. And now there was no twisted laugh on his face, but on the contrary, it was all shaken with tears. In a weeping, faltering, spluttering patter, he cried out, And what would I tell my boy if I took money from you for our disgrace? And having said this, he broke into a run, this time without turning around. Alyosha looked after him with inexpressible sadness. Oh, he understood that the captain had not known until the very last moment that he would crumple the bills and fling them down. The running man did not once look back, and Alyosha knew that he would not look back. He did not want to pursue him or call out to him, and he knew why. When the captain was out of sight, Alyosha picked up the two bills. They were just very crumpled, flattened, and pressed into the sand, but were perfectly intact, and crisp as new when Alyosha spread them and smoothed them out. Having smoothed them out, he folded them, put them in his pocket, and went to report to Katerina Ivanovna on the success of her errand. The success, he says. Katerina Ivanovna at no point said that this was a test, or that this was, you know, to bolster the man's self-image, but Alyosha does recognize this, and Dostoevsky does recognize this. This was a success. This captain managed to cling to some shred of that pride, and in fact, grow that pride, because he was able to look Alyosha in the face and tell him no. Tell him, keep your damn money. There's your money, sir. He's not that desperate. He's not that disgraced. And he's not that shamed. And it is painful to read this. Like, there is something comical about a lot of this. Like, again, we get that joke about the Herzen Stoop showing up and not being able to say anything about the subject. Like, a lot of the sort of interjections and stuff are particularly funny. Like, when the wife is introduced to Alyosha, she gets his name wrong. She calls him Chernish or Chernish Chernimazov rather than Karamazov, which is actually kind of revealing uh, this is the Russian word for uh, the same thing that 
Karamazov would mean in the Turkish, i.e. the name Karamazov means black smeared, um, as though they are stained in some way. And she draws attention to this, but with the error that she makes. Like, she gets the Russian word for black churny rather than the Turkish word for black care, as you can find in the notes. I'm not... I don't know Russian, but Peter and Balakonsky do, unfortunately. They, they flagged this one. There's something hilarious about all of this, something ridiculous about all of this. This man with his, his tiny little pride and his very fragile little ego. There is something absurd about it, and there's something so moving. There's something real here. Like we said before, where Elder Zosima, you know, we're listening to Fyodor Pavlovich talk about all of these ridiculous things and, and the buffoonery, and Elder Zosima is like, just don't lie, man. And then he leaves, and we see him talking to the peasants, and they have real problems. You know, my daughter is, is dead, and I'm not over it because it's the fourth time I've had a child die. Or I don't know whether my son is coming home or not. Or any of these sorts of things. Now we're seeing these real problems firsthand. Alyosha, too, is dealing with them. Here we've been running around talking to Fyodor and Dmitri and Ivan and all of their elaborate sort of lies that they're telling to themselves to cover up their own weaknesses and insecurities, to cover up their own shame in many senses, to, to bolster their own pride. But then we see this family where there really is life and death on the line, where it isn't a bunch of adults acting like children, but where it's children who are suddenly forced to act like adults, people who are hurting in very deep and painful ways, and without any solution, and who are just kind of run over by these rich people in the process. That in the process of Fyodor and Dmitri's feud, they end up just destroying this whole family, which was already not doing great. Here we see real problems. But at the same time, just as Elder Zosima respects both, Elder Zosima helps the women who come to him with their desperate needs, and at the same time he goes back in and he bows to Dmitri and he acknowledges Ivan's greatness. Alyosha doesn't judge either. But Alyosha is trying to fix this. And he screws up, arguably. He too offers, you know, I will give my own money, and that's what clicks it. That's what makes it impossible. But at the same time, maybe it is a success. Maybe it's better that this family suffer with their pride intact than to accept the money from their betrayers and achieve some kind of fleeting financial independence. It's complicated. Dostoevsky knows it's complicated. He knows that this is difficult. A strain. That's the term he keeps using here. Strain in the drawing room between Katerina Ivanovna and Ivan. Strain at the in the countryside with the how the castle and all of these people who are just trying to make sense of their lives now that they've been torn apart in this just random and cruel way. And then and in the fresh air. Out here going on this walk to the rock in this squalid little corner of this crappy little town. That's what Ilyusha says at one point. This is a bad little town. And Captain Snegorov agrees. Yes, it is. It is a bad town. Maybe that's why we should leave. It is a bad town. It's a bad place. It's a bad world in many ways. 
if only because of this sort of complex and inextricable interactions of pride and honor, life and death. As much as I think that there is something silly about all this, there is something also very deadly meaningful. And I don't have a solution. Like, as much as I do make the connection to a contemporary discussion of toxic masculinity, I don't have an answer for you. There's certainly lines here. What Fyodor and Dmitri are doing seems very toxic, on a number of levels. But it's also hard to fault either one of them. It's hard to say that either Dmitri or Fyodor is the worst of the two. In many ways, Dmitri seems like the victim and Fyodor the aggressor, and Fyodor is a terrible person. But Dmitri acknowledges he's also awful. He's the one who's kicking his own father in the face, after all. Kind of hard to see that as deserved or understandable or even sympathetic. Sure, we understand the logic behind it. Dostoevsky goes to great pains to explain why Dmitri is in such pain. But notice that that's what it comes down to, pain. It's always pain here. Fyodor is in pain, so he seeks the love of Grushenka. Dmitri is in pain, so he seeks the you know, shaming of Katerina Ivanovna and the love of Grushenka as well. Ivan is in pain and he's searching for a solution, trying to find the love of Katerina Ivanovna. Father Farapont is in pain and Musov is in pain and Snegurov is in pain and Katerina Ivanovna herself is in pain and Madame Koklikov is in pain. They're all in pain. They're all trying to fix this with the band-aid of pride or the band-aid of comfort or the band-aid of, you know, self-worth. They're trying to overcome how awful their lives are. And we've seen that they're making each other miserable. Dmitri makes Fyodor miserable, and Fyodor makes Dmitri miserable. Dmitri makes Captain Snegorov miserable, and Captain Snegorov is making his son miserable. Katerina Ivanovna is making Ivan miserable, because Dmitri is making her miserable. Like, it's all in this cycle. And there's no starting point. At no point can we look at this text and say, you, you were the cause. This is the inciting incident. Up until now, we were in this paradise. But no, Fyodor is the father. We would logically point to him, but he's apparently always been like this, always been ashamed, always been upset with himself, always been embarrassed just to be him. He's miserable for things that have happened so far in the past that we can't even figure out what they are. And that's the key here. That cycle is constant. Dostoevsky's whole mission here, the whole major project, yes, I talked about how Alyosha is our hero, but the key is he's a hero in this world, amongst this suffering, a suffering that he has no power to stop. But he does have the power to bomb, to treat, to attempt to assuage in some way because that's all he can do. And the only way that he does this is Alyosha himself does suffer to some degree. He suffers the pangs of compassion. He is bitten down to the bone by Alyosha. But because he doesn't let that suffering cause him to cause others suffering. The buck stops there. He accepts it, and he puts it down. He solves it. At least that's the best solution I've got so far. At least that's the best solution we've been presented at this fairly early stage in the book, but there's a lot to come. But keep that in mind. Dostoevsky 
is, in many ways, one of the greatest artists of suffering in the world. He feels it keenly, communicates it keenly, and recognizes its consequences. And it is all over this book. It is very much all about the darkness of the world, the pain that we cause each other for senseless reasons, pointlessly, for stupid things. So for next time, we're going to shift our focus. It's time to talk about Ivan. And this is, in fact, the chapter we've all been waiting for, the famous stuff with the Grand Inquisitor. We're finally going to get to pro and contra and see exactly the way that Ivan's mind works and what is, in fact, driving him and exactly what his great thoughts may include. It should be quite the discussion. So I look forward to talking to you about it soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.